difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film in a way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Tasha Robinson. And Scott Tobias. Genevieve Kosky remains absent with leave so she can take her crops to town. On last week's show, we talked about Jean de Florette, the first half of Claude Berry's adaptation of a story of tragedy and, eventually, revenge in Provence. With this episode, we'll turn our attention to Minari, Lee Isaac Chung's semi-autobiographical film about growing up in 80s Arkansas. In broad description, Minari probably sounds like a film with few surprises. The story of a Korean-American family moving to rural America instantly conjures up expected scenes of clashing cultures. The presence of a foul-mouthed grandmother promises a different sort of awkward comedy. And in reality, all these expected elements can be found in Minari, just not in the expected arrangement. Take the relationship between Jacob the father played by Stephen Yuen, and Paul, a neighbor who becomes his employee and, somewhat reluctantly on Jacob's part, his friend. Though as played by Will Patton, Paul's every inch the country eccentric, he's also a fully realized character whose reaction to the Yi family's arrival and deep fondness for them refuses easy stereotyping. Though often anchored in the experiences of David, it's a film that wants viewers to look at its story from all angles. For instance, upon first interesting the local church, Monica, the mother played by Han Yi Ri, is described by the other parishioners as cute. She smiles, then later says she hopes not to go back to that church again. But they do. They're part of that community, united by faith and proximity. And being part of a community can be complicated. Chung brings that complexity to every aspect of the film, and we'll talk about that after the break. We need to find water somewhere. If that soil ain't wet, we're gonna lose the crop. All right, everyone. So let's talk about Minari. What did everyone think? I liked it quite a bit, and I have to say, it was one of those movies that, from afar, I don't, I didn't, I haven't been to Sundance since two thousand one, but it's like one of those Sundance buzz magnets that kind of makes me raise an eyebrow a lot of the time. I just thought, oh boy, this is just going to be, this is going to come out. All the critics seem to love it, but it's going to be too earnest for me to handle or artless or kind of like just a Sundance film. And I was surprised and excited the degree to which I was wrong in those assumptions and that it is a really fine work of art and extremely evocative. I mean, it has a novelistic quality, or I guess in this case, a a memoir-ish quality in that all of the details feel right. You know, I mean, and it's just, it's so 
you know, exciting to be transform, uh, transported, I should say, to this time and place with these characters and get into really specific interactions and specific hopes and dreams. And it's just, it felt really particular and very well realized, incredibly well acted. So, uh, yeah, I was a big fan of this movie. Yeah, it was too. And part of it, honestly, is I feel like as I was watching it the first time, I thought, is this literally a remake of Jean de Florette? You know, the kind of blow by blow, the search for water, the success of the crops, the failure of the crops, the tension in the marriage, the tension in the man's life, the tension with the locals. So many different phases came to me from Jean de Florette. And I not know really knowing the history, which is my preference the first time I see a film. I really wondered if this was somebody feeding this specific story, like through his own culture, through his own memories. But even if it was, I, I think the kind of the, the joy of Minari, the surprising thing about Minari is the degree to which all of the characters are understandable, are important, and are protagonists. You know, everybody in this film, you can kind of see the story from their perspective. The film stands back a little bit to kind of give you give you the perspective of David, the little kid who has a heart murmur, and so his parents fuss over him and hold him back, and he, he doesn't get to do the exciting running around in a, a new space that a kid naturally wants to do. You can feel kind of the stress of his slightly older sister, who's just old enough to feel a responsibility both to her brother and to her parents and to kind of perpetually be navigating all of the things she understands about the tensions in the house while not knowing what to do about them. You could see the grandmother like coming over from from overseas and being culturally uncomfortable and, and frustrated with her role in the house, but also being kind of obnoxious to the kids. And then, of course, you can see both of the parents, what they want and how far they are from it and how far they are from each other and understand each other. It's just it's a really nuanced piece of character work and just navigating the difficulties of all of these relationships and kind of the the naturalism of all of these relationships. Again, nobody sits down and gives a speech about, you know, here's my relation to you and here's how I feel about it. But it really gives a whole lot of dimension to what otherwise might feel like a fairly standard story of farmer tries, farmer fails. All right. So I, I knew this film had a foul mouth granny in it. Yeah, like I like I I go I went in thinking this one's gonna have to work extra hard to win me over <laughs> to get past the, the foul mouth granny block. But I, we haven't talked about Yuan Yu Jung's uh, performance as the grandmother, but but uh, you know it, she's exemplary of what makes this film work. But yeah, she's a funny foul mouth granny, but it, it really just kind of commits to her as a person as well. And as Tasha pointed out, she's obnoxious. I mean, if I were I if I were David, I wouldn't necessarily wouldn't want her in my face. Uh, you know, feeding me horrible things to drink and talking about my broken ding dong um you know <laughs> uh for a second you know but uh uh, I, I think that you know the the melting between them is one of the one of the great things about this film, and the way it doesn't you know so, soft pedal a spoiler if you haven't seen the film but it doesn't soft pedal her illness late in life as well you know it, it's it's really good and, and and like a couple of details that really stood out to me you know watching it a second time how much of the camera is so low to the ground it's like a kid's perspective and it's kind of like you know I, I, Ozu always shot his films or shot many of his, his scenes like from from the point of view of a tatami mat and this, this felt like it's kind of shot from the perspective of a kid looking up at the world a lot of the time and it's it's really you know really lovely bit of filmmaking that way but the 
Other thing that stood out to me, you know, obviously it's a lot of credit goes to the production design here, but but how many of the details just felt like taken from memory, like that specific handheld baseball game that he plays, the Mountain Dew bottle, the glass Mountain Dew bottle, the, the way the, the kids latch on to Mountain Dew is this delicious exotic beverage <laughs> that's healthy for them, you know. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I don't know I don't know for sure that happened to the director, but uh, you know, it felt like felt like the kind of kind of taken from life detail that can really make or break this kind of film. Yeah, I guess another point of comparison I bring would be 20th Century Women, which was another film that just felt like walking through someone's memories at times. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is a very persuasive film. And in, in a couple of other things that really stand out for me about it, one is that I is that I appreciate just how far out on a limb these characters are, this family is in this situation. I mean, not only, you know, moving from California to the middle of Arkansas, but not from a position of strength, really. I mean, this marriage is in big trouble <laughs> before they even get in this very stressful situation. The land is just a dream, an improbable and seemingly impossible dream that, that's only being nurtured by the husband here. And even under the best of circumstances, even if the, the land does is rich and yields the sorts of wonderful Korean vegetables that it is capable of yielding, you know, fate has a hand that it's going to play. So there's that. And the other thing that stands out to me too about the film is that I think it's an interesting immigrant tale and that I, I think it's not just the community. It's not the community that really rejects this family. There's an insularity to this family and there, and there is a refusal, I think, to try to reconcile what they're doing with the people in the culture around them. I mean, in the sense that the, he's growing vegetables that are Korean vegetables that he's going to sell to a vendor eight hours away in in Dallas. That was another kind of aspect of the film that stood out for me as well. Yeah, that tornado scene or the storm scene early on with the tornado uh, watch uh, really establishes right away just just what the consequences are if one thing goes wrong, and then you know you get as as in as not to jump ahead, but as in John Day Florette, you get you know we take water for granted, and here's a situation where water disappears, and what happens? You know, you know this is a sort of basic element that, that not even just for their crops, but just for to live their day to day life isn't there anymore. Uh, it, it is uh, the stakes are, are very high from very early on. At the same time, the stakes are almost more about the personal relationships, again, than about the the financial safety. You know, whether they make a go of this farm or not is obviously a big part of the narrative, whether they have control over the weather, uh, which they don't, or uh, access to water or not is a big part of the narrative. But really, it all seems less like the important part of the story and more like a way to highlight the tensions that have formed between what every member of this family wants that's different from what everybody else wants and the gaps between their understandings of each other, their willingness to go along with each other, their willingness to listen to each other. I was surprised by a lot of things in this film. One of the big ones being that they aren't particularly unwelcome in the community. You know, they they don't really have to deal with prejudice in a way that I was expecting to just be a natural part of the story. They have to deal with the land not cooperating, but it really seems like they've got a lot of troubles going on far before that happens. And that isn't really the most important part of the story. There's a lot here that is unconventional. And maybe it's because it comes from personal experience that, that gives it a nuance that a story like this doesn't normally have. But there are a lot of places where I kind of expected this film to fall into cliche and it doesn't. 
I think they deal initially with a certain amount of ignorance. So it's like with with a boy has to be asked, you know, why is your face flat? And he's like, it's not flat. And it's like, okay, my name is whatever. What's your name? You know, it's like it, it doesn't get that much that far beyond that. But at the same time, I, I, you know, I don't think this family is, you know, particularly the I guess the adults are that keen on making friends, you know, on really looking that far outside of themselves to connect with the, with the community. In fact, the only, you know, it's a big deal when Paul sits down for dinner with them because it's the only time anybody has done that, has broken bread with that family. Yeah, they run into ignorance and confusion and some stereotyping, but they don't run into cruelty, really. They don't have to deal with the kind of aggressive racism that is usually part of this kind of story. And I found that refreshing. So that's actually a good segue to go to John de Florette because that is a, the place where these stories become very different in terms of how they're treated by the locals and the ultimate fate of the project itself. But we'll get into that after the break when we talk about these films together. David, the house, we have to pay for water. Huh? We don't have it. You don't have it. You don't have it. You don't so now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common and some things they don't. Tasha, we were just talking about the way these films uh, deal with uh, you know communities and, and the community's reactions to outsiders. So let's, let's just keep going with that. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that in both of these cases, really, you have a small family unit that doesn't necessarily reach out much to the community at large. Like Jacob understands that his wife wants to make friends and takes her to church as kind of a concession so she can meet the locals. And she does. And she kind of comes away a little distressed and a little disappointed and kind of done with that. They're not necessarily insular in a we hate the outsiders kind of way. But everything that they're working on that's important to them is something that is uh, has to do with their land and their family, their home, their plans, their dreams. Outsiders don't figure into it much. And you get a lot of the same sense from the family in Jean de Florette. They're very isolated. And part of that is their doing. You know, it's it's very easy for Cesar and his nephew to weaponize the area against them. By implying that they're outsiders, by pointing out that John is a hunchback, you know, by by weaponizing like local rivalry and prejudice and stereotypes against them. But John doesn't do himself any favors with the locals. You know, his his one foray into town that we see, his one potential opportunity to reach out to people. He ends up in a, a silent rage with him threatening to attack somebody because of where a bocce ball lands. And you can read that scene, I think, either as a deliberate kind of contemptuous attack that spatters mud all over them, or potentially as an accident that just kind of reveals the tension that's already there. But either way, it feels like in both of these cases, you have a family unit that feels like they don't need the outside world, that feels like they have everything that they need, or maybe that they don't have everything they need, but everything that needs to be worked on, everything that's important is already there for them. So as a result, you have this, this like very standoffish group of protagonists who don't have a support network. 
locally who don't have anybody to turn to, except in the case of uh, Minari, this one very strange outsider who, again, when you're talking, when we're talking about things that I was expecting that didn't happen, I, I was expecting something horrible to happen with him. He was so cracked, so strange, so off in his own obsessions. I kept expecting the film to villainize him in some way, and it didn't. But I just I think it's interesting that you've got kind of two different ways of looking at outsiders here as either sort of like malevolently prejudiced and withholding key information out of like resentment and and stereotyping versus a kind of ignorant, confused benevolence and indifference. But in both cases, you've got the exact same result, which is an isolated family with with very little resources they can turn to for help. Maybe I'm I'm being too harsh in my assessment here, but I feel like if the Yees weren't part of the church, they might be subject to more suspicion and isolation on the on the part of the community. But there's sort of a sense of of they're they're one of us in this in in this very important way, which is our faith, which kind of gives them an in in a, in a strange way, you know, makes them less of an outsider than John and his family and John de Florette. But I don't think we see a lot. I mean, we a lot of interaction there, though. I mean, they're they're kind of just you know they go to work at the hatchery and then they go home. I don't think there's, there's a lot well, of the a kids huge go amount. to church. I mean, you get the feeling the kids are going to church on the regular. True. There's a church bus that takes them places, and that's true. And, and, and I mean, Paul, Paul certainly is more shunned, I guess, than yeah. they are as as kind of a and more know, judged. Yeah, by you know, he's kind of judged as a freak by kids on the bus and that sort of thing. Uh, that scene's really that scene really sticks with me too. You know, of him just be of him kind of dragging down the street. And... Yeah, but also being mocked by by sort of like these bratty these bratty church kids. You know, it, I don't. You know, there's a lot of ways to to look at that, and and I don't think the the church kids come off looking good all that well, uh, no matter how you look at it. No, I mean, this guy, Paul, is nothing if not a man of faith <laughs> yeah. uh, as well. And both films kind of have a respect for labor, you know, and for, you know, the the visions of Jacob and of Jean to try something this audacious without support, as Tasha was saying, from the community to isolate themselves like that and then and then have enough you know, faith in their own abilities and their own grit to try to do something really hard, but uh, potentially very gratifying. But at the same time, both of these stories have outsiders that have information about the land because they've been there for a really long time and they know its history in a way our outsider protagonists don't know. You know, there are there are things that they're just not aware of specifically because they come from from outside and things that might have changed the story if if they'd known. With the Yees, mm -hmm. it's less, oh, there's a very important piece of trivia about your land and without it, you'll fail. And more, there's precedent for what they're trying to do and it didn't go well. With John DeFlorette, it's more like if you'd made the right moves early on. I, th I think one of the big tragedies of Jean de Florette is uh, just a sense that if Jean had come into town early on and had a drink in that bar and started talking to some of the locals and made friends, he wouldn't be dependent on Yugolin for all of his interfaces with the outside. He wouldn't be dependent mm. on him for a mule. He wouldn't be dependent on him for water. He wouldn't be dependent on him for intel. And he could have changed the entire story by not letting the outside world demonize him as an outsider. 
And I feel like we're maybe left to interpret that maybe that's his reaction to the world because he's faced prejudice in the past. He's faced difficulties in the past. But however it happens, you know, he he doesn't reach out when he could have. And he has to remain an outsider the entire time. And it kills him. And I think there's some recognition, too, in Minari by Jacob over the course of the film that he should embrace the community more. You think about the sort of the water diviner issue, you know, which, which, you know, when he has a water diviner turn up in, uh, at the beginning, I think he finds the whole ritual to be ridiculous and doesn't want to pay a cent to this person to find where the water is. And that changes at the very end of the film. Right. And, and I don't think it necessarily changes as a result of him believing that this is the proper way to find a well. I think it's a, an acceptance of traditions that are not his own. Yeah, I think it's a sense of the, this is how things are done here and we live here now, so we will do it as well. Yeah. I think in Jacob and Jean both, you have kind of a sense of somebody who's been through trauma and doesn't trust other people as a result. And as a result, participates in his own remaining an outsider. I think we don't get a whole lot of the story, but it feels like with Jacob in particular, he feels that his manhood is threatened. He feels like his fatherhood is threatened because he has failed to provide for his family. And it's vitally important that his project succeed to prove that he is these things that he visualizes for himself. It's a little more complicated with Jean because he's going back to his mother's home, his ancestral home, and he maybe doesn't have as much to prove to his family, but he did drag them away from the city to this land that he said he was going to make a go of it. And it's up to him to prove that he was right, that he wasn't mistaken to try. So I think in both cases, their isolation suggests kind of like bigger tragedies and, and fears and hurts in their background than we necessarily get laid out in vast detail. Yeah, I think that's a good point because we don't we really don't know. We, we assume, it's safe to assume that John's experienced a lot of shunning in, in his lifetime. And we don't really know Jacob's story, but it, you know, something, something's driven him to this place. Well, we certainly get the feeling that he's, he's struggled with poverty and that it's yeah. left a mark on him. But he also, I think, there's a, a very... American idea that he's embracing here of self-actualization and claiming this piece of land. I mean, and he talks about it too with his son, I believe, you know, he doesn't want to be in somebody's employ, you know, <laughs> he doesn't want to be employed by the hatchery and making wages for somebody else. He wants his piece of the, of the country. He wants his 50 acres of beautiful land that he can create something out of. And that's a kind of a, an American impulse to be able to, you know, settle land, you know, to take something wild and tame it and, and make it into make it something that's yours that you own. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an American impulse. We should talk about, you know, this is an American story to its core. Jean de Florida is very much a French story. They have different outcomes. How much of that can we attribute to the countries in which they take place? And, and perhaps the, and the perhaps regions. To, wonder, to what? And the regions. I mean, you know, I mean, Provence is settled. <laughs> you right. Know, it's been around for a while. And this is, you talk about, when you talk about Cesar, I mean, like, that's old money, you know? Yeah. This is, this is, you know, this is the elite, well-established, you know, rich family. 
Uh, and Lannis has kind of changed hand from, from one right. family member to another over generations, not just with his estate, but with, with the other ones around there, whereas this is land nobody wants. In fact, that drove someone to kill themselves, the last person who tried to use it. Yeah, but the land in Minari is just, I mean, who who even can conceive that that's worth anything, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just like this, that they're moving to a home on cinder blocks, you know, in the middle of a field in Arkansas. It doesn't seem like it's worth anything. Certainly, there's no old money controlling it. They're out on their own, uh, and they're creating something out of nothing. I mean, Provence is, everything is settled. There's no scrap of land that isn't, whose value has not been determined, you know, and, uh, you know, because, because people have been, have settled that area for centuries. Yeah. And it's, I think, significant that Jean talks about how under no circumstances will he ever sell his mother's house. It's important to him because it's his mother's house. And Cesar talks about the importance of maintaining his line and of making sure that Ugolin has children. They're both very driven by their heritage. Jacob is out to abandon his heritage, is about to abandon everything about his past life. It's the great American, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, start over, leave everything and create yourself anew in a new country. That, you know, that kind of story is very much part of the uh, the American ideal, but it leaves him even more isolated, I think, than even than Jean is, because Jean at least has these fantasies of being connected to something bigger and older than he is by trying to settle his family's land. Though I think what Jacob is farming is significant and stubborn and not willing to completely, you know, give up his past or who he is. I mean, he's growing Korean vegetables in the middle of Arkansas, um, where there's not any kind of immediate close market for them. It's a very stubborn thing to do. And and, uh, and his connection, what ends up being a, a connection, is a grocer in Dallas, which is not anywhere close to where they live and, and would not, not is not at all a practical outlet. But he's determined to make these vegetables from home work in Arkansas. Yeah, you have you have a point there. I think that's that's really apt. But I will say that my interpretation, at least, was less that he was hanging on to his heritage by growing specifically Korean vegetables for a Korean market, and more that he saw it as a niche he could exploit. It's almost like he's selling his own heritage. Mm. There's an aspect of that story that just it's very reminiscent of people that go overseas, you know, to any country, but want to be enfolded in an experience where they've got a tour guide from their country that speaks their language. They only go to places where they can continue to speak their language with people from their own country. So they travel in like a little insular bubble. I feel like he's got this one little insular bubble of his his heritage, his community, his history, whatever you want to call it, but he's only hanging on to it for profit reasons. He, he sees it as something that he can exploit. And I think as tenuous as his connection in Dallas is, it's a sign that he's he's ultimately right. I think there is a you know there is a market he can exploit. He's not he's his instincts are are good, and this is, seems like it's a farm that's likely to grow, a business that's likely to expand by the films, and that's how I read it anyway. I think one support for Tasha's argument here too is the end of the film is the title of the film. You know what the yeah. film is referencing, yep. uh, which is the the Minari itself and what it symbolically represents in terms of family in terms of something that's going to always be there, right? That's going to grow easily and bountifully 
despite any hardship, it's going to, there's, there's something reliable about it that I think Jacob doesn't embrace. I mean, he didn't, he's not the one planting this stuff, but that he becomes their salvation of sorts at the end. Well, there definitely is a feeling that this is part of his heritage, part of his culture that he is kind of reconnecting to that he didn't put it there. It, he didn't, establish it for commercial reasons. Nonetheless, it is still this part of of South Korea that has successfully made the journey over, that has successfully implanted in this new world, you know, better than he has, better than his other crops have. Apropos of uh, almost nothing, except kind of talking about that, that scene with the taking the vegetables to the man in Dallas, I just thought it was kind of a, a fun little parallel how much the scene of him, you know, presenting the best vegetables he has left to this grocer mirrors the scene of Yugolin bringing his carnations to the florist. Just mm. like in both cases, just these crops like eked out of uh, hard work and, and desperate close attention being presented to an outsider who doesn't know anything about what went into them and doesn't care is just kind of like looking at the final product and weighing its value. Uh, I think in in both cases, that just feels like a very similar scene and just a, a very interesting and necessary one. You can tell stories all day long about the the hard labor and, and deep focus and caring for the land of the farmer. But in the end, if nobody wants to buy the thing that you spent an entire season laboring on, what, what is your labor for? There's another parallel of uh, John packing up the little sampler pack of vegetables. Descendants are by way of Yugolin as well, although I think it's a little uh, slightly different in that context. Yeah, they'd have a better idea of what went into mm-hmm. <laughs> making it since they're keeping an eye on it on Jean. But uh, that is that is a good point. I mean, the marketplace is cold <laughs> in that sense. It's just like they don't. It doesn't matter the the context of which something is produced is not important it's it's not as important to the buyer as it is to the to the grower all that stuff in dallas is just so fascinating another great piece of filmmaking too just like the alien nature of the place of driving into a city like that after being Mm. in the middle of nowhere for a while the interesting sort of dovetail between the business that jacob is trying to do and david's medical situation and how that that ends up getting being you know two pieces of seemingly good news that <laughs> wind up being revealing of Jacob's motives, I guess, or character in a way that's negative to him. And, and, or at least from the perspective of his wife is proof that she, that he cares more about his dream and his farm than his family. All that stuff was really well handled. Yeah. I think it's staged in such a way that you can read it either way. It's like, you can see her frustration, but also if those vegetables go bad, they're, they're there. It's more than just not making this particular sale. It's, it's their whole, their whole livelihood. Yeah. I mean, and that's the other, that's another connection between these two films is financial peril is of these two projects being done on such a shoestring. The stakes being incredibly high and they're not being much of a, of a fallback. If you lose, you lose everything and that puts such a strain on our lead characters in both and and then a strain on the families as well particularly the family in in minari which is in pretty rough shape from the start or the marriage is in pretty rough shape from the start and you know it is tested to the breaking point by the issue of money and 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 whether whether this sort of long shot desperate 
dream of Jacob's can actually be realized. If it can't, then, you know, they're in trouble. And, when it, and of course, when it can, potentially, it's also trouble because uh, I think his wife sees things a little bit clearer than, than he does. I think one difference between these two stories is you get the feeling in John de Florette that a sudden influx of cash would basically solve the problem and create a happy ending for these characters, or at least put them on on, on, on their way to a better a better life. Whereas with Minari, Chung really does re- draw out the fault lines between these, this couple, and, and there's no sense that money alone would, would fix what's going going wrong with that marriage. That's probably true, although there is a sense that if the farm was a thriving and growing concern, if they didn't have to worry about money, if she didn't have to worry about the failure of all of it, there'd be less tension. There'd be less tension in Jacob for her to have to navigate. There'd be less of that obvious sense of like Monica doesn't want to be there and she can see that they shouldn't be there as long as the farm is failing. She can see that Jacob is making more and more mistakes and is damaging himself emotionally by just trying to work harder, trying to cling to the fiction that he can make water come out of nowhere in order to to make everything work. You know, a, a big pile of money might not fix everything in their marriage, but it, it would at least give them space to figure out the problems without that uh, that knife blade hanging over them. I mean, I think there's a sense, too, of just uh, when a whole family is subject to the vision of this one person that they're just held hostage and they're resentful of that. Again, particularly Minari, there is that there's that sense of just like I'm now tied to this vision that, you know, from the wife's perspective of just like you brought me to this place that I don't know, that's unfamiliar, that's unpleasant, you know, this home that is leaky and, you know, modest to an extreme degree to fulfill a vision that as a couple, they don't share. (laughs) So there's not not a lot of room for success in that formula. There is a sense that Jean's wife, Amy, is a lot more supportive of his endeavors and maybe anticipating his success more, working mm-hmm. for his success more, because she seems to to follow his dream. And that maybe because she doesn't seem to have a whole lot of dreams of her own. We get that brief mention that uh, she used to be an opera singer, but we don't really find out anything about how that came out, what she got out of it, what it means to her, why she left it, uh, whether it means anything to her that she left it. She seems very content, content with her lot, content with her, uh, her relationship. And she is as stressed as he is by the, the failure of the farm. She's as stressed as he is by the constant efforts to get the plants water. But there's never a scene where she breaks down and says, this was a mistake. Why did I believe in you? Why did you drag me out here? She doesn't seem to have that much agency, frankly. Hmm. No, I mean, I think it's just, I think it's also just a better, more functioning marriage, you yeah. know, from the start than the one in Minari. So, uh, and I think you need to be together on that front in order to for something like this to be possible, uh, in order for it to make fifty acres in the middle of Arkansas work. At the same time, I think both of these stories mine a, a pretty good tension out of that feeling of family members looking at one person who's just digging themselves in deeper and deeper and perpetually thinking like where that line is, where's the line between not being supportive and not letting them kill themselves over this project. 
And in Jean de Florette, particularly, that there's that amazing scene where Eugelin thinks he's finally won, where Jean starts asking about the value of his farm and Eugelin starts lowballing him and thinking that they're on the brink of him finally buying the farm. And instead, it turns out that Jean's just realized, oh, he could mortgage the farm and have a ton of money to solve his problems with. I couldn't help but see that scene a little bit from Amy's perspective, just sort of thinking like, how deep are you going to dig this? Having failed this far, at what point do I legitimately say, if you continue down this this path, not only will we be paupers, we'll be deeply, deeply in debt that we can't get out of. You know, at what point do you say no to a family member who's not just literally, in this case, mortgaging his future, but your own? A movie would hit, run into problems if it didn't make clear just how much danger they were in, and I, you, you risk a you risk a film in which you know a lot of films you run into the sort of the the the, the shrewish wife who doesn't want uh, the the dreamy husband to have his dreams come true, but uh, that's really not the case in either of these films. Even if one uh, wife is a little more uh, active in trying to to find a common sense way out, uh, even if the farm is ultimately a success, you feel why her concerns are legitimate every step of the way. As far as the family dynamic between these two films go, we haven't really talked about the children, particularly their role as witnesses. Manon's job in Jean de Florette is basically to be a, a kind of wide-eyed, sad, and silent witness. Mm-hmm. And it's in part because she's going to get her own film later. You know, her her presence is not necessary as really part of the story, except for her to take it all in. So later when we shift to a story where she has a more active role, we know that she knows all of these things. And as and, a result- And look at Eugelin with, with, you know, a gaze of hate <laughs> in, <laughs> sure. in every scene. So, and, and you know, to, to spark some truly horrific actions on his part in that second film. But in Jean de Florette, she, we basically just get a lot of close-ups of her big, solemn eyes as she takes in one scene or the, the other. She works really hard, and she doesn't complain. She doesn't seem to have a life on the farm outside of the work that she does, but she seems engaged with it in a little kid kind of way. She's a very strange presence in the film. And David just has so much more, again, agency, so much more presence and personality. He's got his illness that he has to navigate and the tensions around that. He's got his tensions around his grandmother. He's got this friendship that he he wants to navigate that's kind of in a weird place. He's just so much more of a character. But in part, that's because he has to get all of his being a character done in this film. You know, there isn't a, a sequel that's mostly about him. <laughs> well, and this I, I'm going to assume that that he's also this the director's surrogate as well, given the age. I think that's safe to say. Yeah, um, so maybe that would be a reason to kind of try to tell the story from that perspective. And you know, I, I wouldn't say that, that Minari does have any one perspective. I think it's I think because you're, you're getting plenty of scenes that don't have David in them. But as Keith pointed out, there's a lot of child's eye views of things and uh david's is kind of an important presence he's going to be he and his sister are are part of the next generation and they're going to inherit whatever you know mess i guess their parents make and um that's an important part of i guess it's an important part of both films since manon also has to uh grow up and have a role to play in this land as well but i think that the child's perspective is so much more important in minari 
it also does a really nice Minari does a really nice job of capturing the anxiety of being a kid. It just it's just not it's not always easy. You know, even in in a even if you're not living in in a um, house on the cinder blocks and you with know, surrounded by the uh, parents who are putting your life under stress and are clearly having a hard time, you know, maybe you wet the bed and people say your ding dong's broken. These, these are these are these are it's, 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 you're it's a little, rough. You're a little locked into this whole broken ding dong thing, Keith. Do you? Yeah. Oh, so here's a question. Does Minari have a, a main character? Does Minari have a primary protagonist? I, no, I don't think so. I think the family is, is the protagonist in a way. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously has. I think it's focused more on some than others. I think Jacob and David get a little bit more attention than the other characters, but all the, the other characters are pretty well realized. Yeah, I think it's just an interesting contrast given, I mean, Jean de Florette is right there in the name. And then mm-hmm. in the sequel, Bannon of the Spring, it's right there in the name. Like, you know who this movie is about, you know whose story it is. And in Minari, it does feel like the family is the protagonist. It does feel like it's not just Jacob's failing dream. It's not just Monica's failing marriage. It's not just David's attempt to come of age. This sister does not is not the protagonist. His sister does not get as much uh, screen time or a thought time, which I think speaks more than anything else to the idea that uh, David is the the surrogate, the director's surrogate. Because, you know, what little boy has a strong sense of the interior life of his uh, slightly older sister? But you've got those three different people who could each kind of in their way with just a slight narrative shift be a very clear protagonist in the story. And it's balanced between them. So I don't think any of them are. Well, I think in terms of balance, I think we balance out everything we want to talk about about these two films. But we do you know, look forward to your feedback. And, and uh, if you haven't seen Jean de Florette, it is only currently available on Amazon Prime and apparently on some uh, uh, some pretty suspect Korean DVD <laughs> sources. <laughs> and Minari is, is currently available on VOD. And we'll be right back with your next picture show. It's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we recommend, especially in this age of widely available digital media that we all need to catch up on. We call it your Next Picture Show in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, what in the film world has been good for you? So I happened on assignment to see a film that I'd never seen before called Alex in Wonderland. This was Alex Mazursky's second movie, and it is his sort of goof on... Fellini's eight and a half and the joke of it really is that it is about a director making his second movie you know and of course if you remember eight and a half this is about you know Fellini you know in in his crazy life and he's he's deep into his career and it's full of self-doubt and and uh wild visions and and uh, all that's in dreams and all that stuff is sort of incorporated into this grand movie but Alex in Wonderland is about somebody who's just incredibly neurotic <laughs> and whose film has been well received but hasn't really come out as uh, it, it, it hasn't come out at all overseas and he's trying to set up his second movie while also figuring out what kind of lifestyle he can lead now with his his wife played by Ellen Burstyn and, and their two kids that you know what kind of house should they get how much should they spend on the house you know what kind of movie 
should he make? Does she make something that's going to be commercial or should he make something that's going to be more personal? And what's that going to, what are the economics of that going to be? These are questions that torment him, but the film has a comic angle on all of that that I think undercuts the ridiculousness of it being a movie about about a guy making his second movie by a guy, Alex Mazursky, who's making his only his second movie. Paul Mazursky. What did I say? Alex, Alex Mazursky? Yep. Oh, God. Paul Mazursky. Did I say Alex the whole time? Anyway. No, no just that last one. Paul Mazursky. Uh, so it's clever. In, in one of the ways it's clever, I mean, it has, it has a cameos by Fellini himself, who's just basically annoyed that this director he's never heard of, whose film he's never seen, uh, has is coming into his editing bay gushing about him in this very embarrassing way and wants him to leave as soon as, as possible. Uh, it's got a cameo by uh, Jean Moreau, who does a little bit of singing. Uh, it's just kind of a wild and wooly movie and an interesting kind of look at what Hollywood like or perception of what Hollywood was like in the early 70s and, uh, you know, of, of cal- sort of California hippie culture. I mean, it's just got a lot. It's just an interesting kind of document of its time. Not a brilliant movie by any stretch. It was critically not all that well received. Uh, Roger Ebert really liked it, but not many others did. But I liked it, and um, I think for a certain other type of person would like it as well. If you like what I've just rambled on about, so Alex in Wonderland. <laughs> is it streaming uh, anywhere, Scott? It, it, it is ju- just rentable. Yeah, rentable. Okay, mm-hmm. got it. Uh, Keith, what about you? Uh, I have another, um, maybe similarly good, not great, but good in some really interesting ways, recommendation called, it's a film noir, now streaming on Criterion as as part of their Lovers on the Run series called Where Danger Lives. Uh, and it's, it stars Robert Mitchum as a young doctor who tends to a patient who has attempted to Kill Herself, played by uh, Faith Delmerge, who I think most people will know from 50s science fiction films, although she, she's quite good in, in a non-science fiction uh, role here. And, uh, you know, there, there are twists I do not want to give away, but, you know, it is part of the Lovers on the Run series, so you can kind of get a feeling where, where this goes. She plays a uh, very much a femme fatale, um, and it's uh, it's directed by John Farrow, and, and one of the co-stars is Marina Sullivan, so it's kind of one of the films where Mia Farrow uh, comes from, uh, in the sense that they are her parents. But it, <laughs> it ends up being kind of a tour of the the sleazier side of American life in the early 50s as they try to make their way to Mexico to flee the law. I'm being vague here on ten, uh, on purpose, but you know they they find an increasingly less desirable surroundings as as they get uh, you know make make their way and their relationship intensifies and Mitchum character has a health problem that 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 only worsens over the course of the film heightening the tension. It is uh you know it's not one of the best noirs, but it's a very good one. And I would definitely uh, recommend it, and it is also uh, short. It, it breezes by in, in, in eighty minutes and. And uh, uh, there's there's really not a wasted moment within it. So uh, that's, that's where danger lives, and is currently on the Criterion Channel. Tasha, how about you? So I didn't really do TIFF last year, but I paid attention to what was coming out of it. And probably the most exciting thing for me, at least, was a movie called Night of the Kings or Mm. La Nuit de Roy that is an Ivory Coast movie about storytelling written and directed by Philippe Lacote. The 
sort of center of the movie is a young black man sent to a prison in the middle of Ivory Coast that's ruled by the inmates. It's a, a vast, sprawling, open prison. It, there are armed guards, but for the most part, the inmates run the asylum. And it's run by different gangs. And at the point where the protagonist, who is eventually dubbed Roman, lands in the prison, he's a 22-year-old young man. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of experience with uh, this kind of violence, uh, the kind of violence that he's running into in the prison. And he's walking into the middle of a, a big gang succession. The leader of the prison is old and sick and dying. And somehow or another, a new gang is going to rise. And as he's thrust into all of this, he is suddenly informed that he has been given the role of Roman, which is to say a storyteller, a, a griot, essentially. He is going to have to tell everyone a story. And if he doesn't entertain them sufficiently or doesn't keep the story going from moonrise until the next morning, he will be killed. So what you have is sort of a thousand and one nights uh, kind of routine where he tells a story and it ends a little too soon. And then he has to spin up another. Oh, but there's another part of it that I didn't tell you. And so we start to get stories within stories as he eases into his role and tries to entertain and distract uh, this entire prison full of very excited, very violent men while all of this intrigue and maneuvering is going on in the background. And as soon as I read the description of it, I thought this is extremely up my alley. I, I love stories about the power of storytelling. I, I love meta narratives and I love Thousand and One Nights narratives. So I got to see it well before it opened via it, it kind of played a scattering of virtual cinemas. It's coming to theaters and more virtual cinemas at the end of February, and then it's going to be widely available on VOD at the beginning of March. So this is really the first opportunity most people are going to have to see it. And I'm just really excited for them. It's a strange sort of movie. You know, it's a co-production between a bunch of different countries, including Senegal and the Ivory Coast. And it definitely operates more as a, a griot tell than as a conventional commercial, certainly American film. There are going to be rhythms to it that aren't going to quite make sense to American eyes. Certainly many questions are going to arise for people out of this story that are not answered. If you walk into this story expecting it to be all neatly tied up and to have all your questions answered, you're not going to get there. But when it comes to the rhythms of the storytelling itself, uh, to the tradition and the ritual of how these stories are told and how the listeners participate, how they, they speak up and voice their pleasure or displeasure, the whole film just has a, an incredible rhythm to it that's hypnotic. And the stories themselves are engaging and interesting and reminded me a fair bit of City of God, one of my my all-time favorite films. So this is just a kind of a uniquely textured movie, kind of the result of us getting more and more national cinema out of places that have not long had a, uh, either have not long had a cinema scene or have not traditionally exported like nearly enough of that cinema scene out into the world, except in maybe in the smallest ways. You can see some Senegalese films on the Criterion channel, for instance, but I'm, I'm willing to bet that the average person who's not like an art house aficionado 
just hasn't had much opportunity to see movies like this. So this this movie has been just kind of coming up to universal acclaim among art house uh, aficionados. It's going to be out in the real world, and I, I really hope that people seek it out. Night of the Kings. Uh, did either of you catch it? No. No, so, I'm excited great. about it. I, I, that was definitely one out of TIFF that had, you know, was very, very well received. I mean, one of the small handful of films that everyone seemed to love. So if you I'm got the uh, the neon screener box set, it's in there, which ah. was kind of amazing. It, it was it was one of the few films in that the screener set that hadn't actually been released at the time that uh, awards screeners went out. Oh, you're right. Yeah, I have it. So I didn't I didn't realize that, but maybe I'll, I'll watch it that way. Yeah, I didn't realize that either. How about that? All right. Well, I'll, I'll go watch it right now, Tasha. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, we're not we're not we're not even going to do the usual outro stuff. We'll just yep. we'll just skedaddle. End episode. Given how late we are recording this, you guys can both have the experience of does the storytelling keep your attention uh, until dawn? <laughs> yeah, right. nothing does. I fall asleep so much, <laughs> so easily these days. All right, well, that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will drop on March 16th and March 23rd. Tasha, what do we have on tap? The new Disney animation movie Raya and the Last Dragon takes place in a fractured fantasy kingdom that was once the home of dragons until a twisted force of nature turned them all to stone. The movie follows a young woman who's out to find the last dragon who saved humanity from the scourge in a previous age and awaken her to help reunite the kingdom and rescue its people. The film was made in the very distinctive mode of modern Disney, bringing in consultants and creators to give the visuals and story an authentic Southeast Asian look and feel, while drawing on the region's specific mythology. Even so, the movie reminded us a lot of an animated movie from a much simpler age, the Rankin-Bass animated feature The Last Unicorn, also about the last fantasy animal survivor of a twisted plague of nature, and the way she travels with a motley crew of companions to save her people. It's The Last Dragon and The Last Unicorn, together again for the first time on the road on the next Next Picture Show. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Jean de Florette, Minari, and anything else from related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can you find everyone these days? Tasha? I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. And I hadn't really thought about this much uh, until you did exactly this shtick on our last podcast, Keith, but I recently appeared on another podcast that you, you can listen to if, I, I believe the way that you put it, Keith, was if uh, your only problem with Next Picture Pod is everybody who's not me. I did a session with the guys at Podcast Bozo, uh, which is an unusual name for an unusual podcast. They just bring people in and talk to them about their lives and their career and their thoughts. And this was a podcast where I got to talk to people who are interested in film, but not interested in film criticism. You know, got to talk to some people who don't read a lot of uh, film reviews, in the case of two of the hosts, about what it means to be a critic. And I ended up interviewing them about their intersection with film, their intersection with criticism, how they watch what they watch, uh, how they decide how to engage with uh, movies. And it was just a really fun adventure setting foot outside kind of the, the film Twitter environment of mostly talking about films with film critics and art house fans and, and people really steeped in cinema. So if you have a chance to look that up, it's uh, one of the weirder podcast experiences I've ever had, but podcast bozo. It's uh it was a fun time.
You you in- interrogated the interrogators. I did. I do have a tendency to ask the people questions. Yeah, it's like it's like James Spader and in, in Sex Lies and Videotape. Remember well, it was, that it was a bit? podcast, so it was more. It was, it was turned, just like that. I turned the microphone on them more so. <laughs> I always think of the perfect analogy. Um, okay, so you can find uh, me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find me on Clubhouse <laughs> that as well, uh, <laughs> if, if, uh, though I don't use it, and I'm deeply suspicious and uh, of uh, of the whole enterprise. But I'm there for some reason. And uh, still hanging out on Peach, Scott. I got, I'm on Peach as well. If you want to find me on Peach, so uh, which is a much char- much more charming place than Clubhouse. Uh, anyway, you can find me also uh, uh, in writing at uh, the New York Times, uh, uh, Vulture, Guardian, uh, other fine publications. I'm also the editor in chief of Oscilloscopes Musings blog. And what about you, Keith? Oh, I'm a freelance writer. I I I, uh, I take my pen from town to town where needed. <laughs> I breeze in. I, I clean up the place, and then I breeze Yo, out Jimbo. to have, have adventures elsewhere. Yeah. But you can find my writing at places like uh, GQ, uh, The Ringer, Vulture, TV Guide. Occasionally at Polygon. Uh, I'm all over the place. And Gentlemen's Quarterly. Gentlemen's Quarterly. This is true. And um, you can keep track of my writing uh, via my Twitter account at kphips. 3000 where i i don't know sometimes post old movie ads that's kind of fun right all right Cr- crickets crickets from you yeah, crickets no, from good. I, like the, I love it. i love that stuff i love that stuff no crickets all right. as for our our, our absentee co-host uh, genevieve koski you can find her as the tv editor at vulture.com and on twitter as at genevieve koski you can stay updated on the next picture show by visiting the nextpictureshow.net and via Twitter at, at NextPicturePod. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it, and please also consider rating and reviewing us, which will help others find your favorite movie podcast. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Later.